Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. This time I am thrilled to welcome Emily Yoffe, whom I've known forever, it feels. I feel like, at least it feels like right, that way to me, a veteran journalist. She's written some of the most extraordinary stuff, especially on the question of sexual assault and sex on campus, due process, which I hope we'll go into. She's on the Board of Advisors of Persuasion, contributing writer at The Atlantic, the author of a brilliant book about a beagle. <laughs> and we'll get, we'll get to talk about beagles too because they're, they're our mutual passion, I think. Uh, I'm three dogs down the road from my beagle. And have you not – the other ones have not been beagles? Uh, beagle was a once-in-a-lifetime for me, Andrew. <laughs> I'm on my third. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they are a handful. Um, anyway, we'll get to that in, in eventually. Tell me, Emily, um, Joe Biden is now officially reconsidering the changes in the Title IX law around sexual – assault on campus. Tell me the story, if you can, of how this issue emerged, how it was dealt with under Trump, and how it may well be changed again under Biden. Okay. I'm going to make this a very potted history. You have 19, to, Of course. 1972, a federal law passed Title IX, mm. which... I'm paraphrasing very briefly said uh, there can be no discrimination uh, in education on the basis of sex. And the education meant in institutions that got public funds, which is m most educational institutions in this country. For the first 20 years or so, the primary focus, if you're old enough, you thought of Title IX as a sports thing. Um, it was to... Um, even the playing field for women's sports, and it really did help women's sports. And there are also, you know, back in the day, the University of Virginia was men only, for example. So it opened up uh, programs for women. In the 90s, um, there were some pioneering lawsuits to use Title IX uh, to address sexual harassment on campus by professors and sexual assault student to student. And that began creating a new body of law around this. So they're kind of sat and bumped along until uh, the Obama administration when they decided to make campus sexual assault and eliminating it entirely, of course, a very worthy cause, who wouldn't be for that, um, a key domestic initiative. And um, they went all out. It was announced in um, something called a Dear Colleague letter in 2011, uh, an announcement out of the Department of Education saying there are new rules on campus. And uh, college administrators, you better deal with this. You better address this. You better investigate and punish people and kick them out of schools, or we are going to uh, look very scance at you and possibly take away your federal funds. Who was behind that initiative? Where did that come from within the Obama administration? Who was really the strongest uh, faction or person pushing it? Biden was a key person on this. He had written the Violence Against Women Act, um, sorry, a decade or 
so before. So this, he called passing that legislation his greatest legislative achievement. So this was a very key issue for him. And he brought into the White House, created a White House post um, to advise on violence against women. But the initiative had no direction until um, a joint series by NPR and the Center for Investigative Report. I'm sorry, I'm I think I'm getting that wrong, but an investigative reporting center did a series Mm -hmm. on campus sexual assault that galvanized the administration. And they realized we are going to um, focus on campus. Arne Duncan, who was the secretary of education, said to Biden, we have a law we can use, Title IX. And that's really how the initiative uh, got going. And it was Biden's initiative. Yeah, this is he's interested in this whole area of protecting women from violence, which of course is an incredibly important goal. It goes back a long way. Does it did it or did it originate in the Anita Hill hearing? Did it originate because of his his own exposure over the years to some of these issues and his 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 willingness and eagerness to actually either change his mind or to prove to them that he he really was on their side. I have not been in any of the heart to hearts about what I mean I I I think his interest is absolutely sincere mm-hmm. but other people have written that he really had to rehabilitate himself with women but, but both things can be true with women voters you mean y- yes after Anita Hill sorry so you know he got people were People, women especially, were very angry with how the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings went, which he chaired. So there was a, you know, there's a belief he felt he needed to rehabilitate himself. But I think this issue kind of predates that. And I don't think anyone can doubt his sincerity about it. So what, how did they actually change Title IX under the Obama administration? Well, they issued this guidance. So it's not regulations. And... There, there was this initial letter and then a lot of subsequent guidance, which was not always very clear, but um, essentially it, it took away a lot of the school's ability to judge whether or not to go ahead with a complaint. It, it, in the end, what it did was vastly expand the definition of what sexual violence is. In some federal materials, there's actually something that said sexual violence is a range of behavior ranging from rape, uh, unwanted touching, to unwanted compliments and uh, jokes. So so violence in the in the uh, critical theory in our current terms yes. uh, also extended to words, looks, compliments, um, <clears throat> as well as, of course, the incredibly serious things of aggression and and rape and how and and how do why were people worried about the due process part of that well not many people <laughs> were worried or i'm not even sure today how many people are worried but what happened was there was this vast expansion of the definition of what is not allowed on campus something called affirmative consent became a rule on most campuses. It became a law in New York, Connecticut, and California. It's not, it's 
it's a law governing civil behavior on campus. It's not a criminal law. But essentially, affirmative consent means each touch, each time must be consented to um, by the parties engaging in any sexual behavior. A pre-existing relationship does not mean you give uh, permission. So it's this kind of unworkable definition, but actually once it got embedded on campuses, people were being investigated and punished for, well, you you got a yes for this, 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 but then right. a yes for the right one, but not for the left one. So right. literally those kind of investigations are taking place. And it's, it's pretty hard usually in any uh, question of sexual abuse to find out exactly or have proof evidence of what exactly took place. It's, it's notoriously difficult to define. I, I don't know what, I recommend this to, to dishheads out there that uh, there's a wonderful, actually, s- series on HBO Max uh, called Criminal. And it takes yes. place in just a, a single room as a suspect is brought in and interrogated for 24 hours before he or she is allowed to go. Uh, and they had an amazing one on somebody accused of, of rape. And what's brilliant about the thing, it lasts for around an hour, and you really don't yes. know. Yes. You can't tell what really happened. It resolves itself at the end in a rather interesting and surprising way. But it it revealed to me just how unknowable those things can be. I don't mean it's perfectly knowable when someone is using coercion and force, but when it becomes ever more subtle than that, it becomes ever more difficult to define the line so what you're saying is that they broadened the very meaning of sexual violence or sexual assault. Lots of people, more people then, were caught up in that web. And as I understand it, when, they, when men primarily were caught up in that web, they really didn't have anyone in the system to defend them. Well, what happened was the language, of, particularly by politicians, was of describing truly violent, vile um, assaults on people, uh, assaults on passed out women, forced, you know, just by any definition, uh, forced uh, uh, degrees of sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. So this became the language of what we're stopping. Right. Um, you know, truly. Uh, I mean, the the number was one in five young women will be sexually assaulted in her time on campus. But I, I've talked to hundreds of people about this, many Title IX officers, people who were engaged in these hearings, lawyers who defend people. And, and everyone I've spoken to says in the reality, those who came before uh, these boards, those who had complaints made Uh, about them. The overwhelming majority were encounters that began consensually to known people or to students who meet uh, late at night. They're drinking. They go back to a bedroom with the idea of engaging in some maybe kind of sexual behavior. A lot of alcohol involved. So as you say, very few of these was their clear gross violations. It's not that that never happens. A a group of football players are all in prison now for a long time who were at Vanderbilt 
who um, committed gang rape on a passed out um, mm. classmate. But that, fortunately, we should be glad that is fortunately rare. And so these cases, and I wrote about many cases in which there was copious records. It's not just that I'm telling the boy's story and the girl refused to talk to me, which generally she did. But in the stories I did about this for The Atlantic and for Slate, I always picked cases in which there's uh, depositions from the female, mm -hmm. written statements about what happened that I can, to uh, the best of my ability, tell her side, her version. And there just started to be many, many miscarriages of justice. It, be, it became standard for an accused person not to be told explicitly what he is accused of to not get in writing, this is what you did and how we're investigating you, to not be able to provide evidence on his behalf, not to have a hearing. The um, Obama administration uh, recommended, and when they recommended something, schools complied, a single investigator model. That is one person investigating uh, adjudicating and making a final decision. Wow. That, that, that strikes me as a pretty profound violation of normal understanding of fairness because obviously if the person is doing the investigation, they, they kind of have an inherent interest in, in it coming to some kind of conclusion or result. It's, and, and have a, a second party come in as a kind of judge at some point and it seems to me quite obvious at some point the male in this situation should have a right to defend himself just to explain what his side of the story is. And did he have that? Or was, I mean, was that a, a, a last-minute thought? Or, or, or Surely they had the men have some sort of uh, ability to explain their side of the, the case. I saw, You know, it, it varied from school to school. But yes, there would be an interview of the young man. But again, he often, it, the interview would begin, someone from the Title IX office wants to speak to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where were you on the night of? And, you know, it's not, we are talking to you because hmm. Mary so-and-so has said X and it's just this. And what's the, what's the, what's the rationale behind that? Is it, is it that so many men are let off and that you can't actually get successful prosecutions of this? I'm just trying to look, thinking, so what is the good faith reason for people to want to load it in a certain way? Well, then... What also started happening was the whole cottage industry rose up around Title IX. This became a center. This became a place for full-time jobs, many full-time jobs. People since the Title IX law passed, had schools had always been required to have someone handle Title IX issues on campus. But that was often one of a dean or even a coach's duties because so much of this once involved athletics. So the Obama administration said you must have at least one full-time person. Harvard has more than 50. 50? 50 Title IX officers on its campus. Wow. So this whole cottage industry built up, and then they're built up around it and into industry of 
uh, lawyers and advisors and people explaining Title IX and there's, you know, is Title IX in a box, how to conduct an investigation, training, training materials, would just say flat out 92 to 98 percent of the accused are guilty. We have scientific evidence for that. Really? The, let me run that by you again. 92 to 98 percent of these cases end in a, in a conviction for no. the man. No. no. Okay. Sorry. No. Studies show okay. 92 to 98 percent of those who are accused are guilty, not because of a conviction, just because we know. Now, roll that through your mind a little. This became training at universities that have law schools. And where do those studies come from? There also rose up a, a cottage industry of very, I would say, tendentious studies, studies designed to find a certain outcome. There, there are some studies, again, I've written about this, uh, Casey Johnson and Stuart Taylor and... Um, Jeannie Sook and Janet Halley at Harvard and Robbie Suave and Kathy Young. There are, there are a handful of people who wrote about this. So uh, will you look at the studies, the assumptions of the studies don't hold up. And, you know, so it just a study gets published saying 92 to 98 percent of all accused are guilty. And that becomes an embedded fact. So a training material for Title IX officials would tell you when someone makes an accusation, there's likely a 98% chance that this is true. Politicians, members of Congress say this routinely, Mm -hmm. and no one seems to stop and think, hmm, this is, well, why do we have a criminal justice system? You're accused, guilty, go to prison. We would save literally billions of dollars if that were the case. But it just... But this is is sort of a semi-legal... Neutral ground because it's it's a it's a civil thing. It's within a college campus. Um, it doesn't have to abide by those kind of norms. But I assume that the point of all this was to dramatically shift the power yes. away from men and towards women on campus, which strikes me as 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 a as a as a good corrective, but probably maybe a little uh, excessive. What, but what do we have data on? Of all the these Title IX tribunals and ha- what pe- what percentage of them do lead to a conviction and expulsion from college and how much of them are, are just unresolved because it's impossible to tell or how many of them are, are, are thrown out? We could, but we don't because the Obama administration, which um, ordered schools to gather a lot of information on a lot of things. In the K-12 through realm, they had to gather a lot of racial statistics. They had to gather d- statistics about punishment, particularly punishment of children of color. So when they wanted to gather statistics, they were able to. But there was no requirement that schools report to the Department of Education how many people have been brought up on these charges, how many have been found. It's not guilty. It's responsible what the punishments are. A handful of schools over the course of the last few years have released that kind of data. So you get, you know, you you get an eyeball, but it depends on the school. So what is the what is the eyeball? Some schools, it looks like um, in the end, formal, you know, so you have this huge number of reports and that winnows down to a generally low double-digit number of cases that actually move through a formal adjudication. And I'll say 
you know, ballpark about half find people responsible. But there's a whole other... Well, that doesn't seem unfair. It, it, it seems as if that might be uh, this, pretty but, a pretty fair out, 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 outcome. But if tens of thousands of people are going through a system that itself is not fair... And there are some schools that's come out in lawsuits. Some schools find everyone responsible. Some schools find about half, but that, but that's not the necessarily the universe of this because a, a lot of them don't go to um, this kind of formal adjudication. There, you can be suspended, have other kinds of punishments without this. But there is this more than six hundred civil lawsuits have been filed by uh, accused and punished almost exclusively male students since the 2011 Dear Colleague letter. Those that have worked their way through the system, the majority have found in favor of the male students, with judges all over the country writing opinions saying, I mean, this is just one judge, I'm sorry, I'm going to get the date wrong, said, this seems more like Salem in the... uh, 16th century than Boston in the 21st century. Mm. The, the judges were shocked at the kangaroo courts, just the gross violation of rights. And that has created a body of law that the schools have to pay attention to, uh, particularly when a young man's punishment is reversed and he's given a you know diploma. But you need the resources to be able to hire a civil defense attorney. You need the time. These these can take years to work their way through the system. And there's been almost no reporting about all this in, dare I say, the mainstream media. You can say that. Okay. It's a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any evidence? And again, that's so hard here. The hard numbers are hard to get. And, and, and what you're talking about is something that happens often, or at least mostly, uh, inside where other people can't witness it. Have we seen a, a decline in sexual assault on campuses in the last 10 to 15 years? I mean, we have seen in the broader crime statistics a really stunning drop in the, the, the number of rapes, for example, that, that are committed. Have we, has this, I mean, maybe you could argue, and I'm sure it is argued, that yes, some people get caught up in this. In fact, I remember Ezra Klein writing a piece saying, better one innocent man uh, be convicted than, than, than not keep the pressure up on men on campus to behave themselves. That kind of sentiment, and I know you're paraphrasing him, I it was all. It was almost as. It's almost as clear as that. It was kind of refreshing. There and honest. are people I've seen quote many times. Okay, so if some innocent people get caught up, too bad. Small price to pay to change the culture. So now I would. I would ask these pe- These same people, how many innocent people, black men, for example, let's say on death row, are you okay with, to punish people who commit mass murder? gun violence. Are you okay with innocent people being in prison? I think almost everyone who says, I don't care about an innocent young male college student would be appalled to think we're all right with convicting innocent people as long as some guilty people 
are, are right. To. But I think what they would also say is that by changing the culture, that these this new interpretation of Title IX, which insists basically that that women really do hold most of the cards in this, which that would be not accepted. But anyway, okay, yes, I'm I'm that's my personal opinion. But they they do seem to have the whole point of this was to allow women who have experienced sexual assault an easier way to prove it, an easier way to bring it to people's attention. But let me come back to this. What has do we have data that shows whether this has had a positive effect in terms of the amount of sexual abuse being complained about uh, and the kind of atmosphere on campuses that women completely legitimately, as far as I can see, uh, uh, fear. You're absolutely right that in outside of campuses, all violent crime, this year has been, we've had a spike in violent crime, let's put this year aside, for the past 30 years, violent crime, murder, assault, sexual assault, has mostly been falling and fallen dramatically, domestic violence, all those have fallen dramatically. Because this is civil on campus, it's not, mm-hmm. it's rarely reported to the criminal justice system, although there are campus cases that make their way to the criminal justice system. Again, we don't have the kind of data that we have on crime. But so a lot of it relies on surveys that, again, the questions, I think, are very unreliable, unreliable, very broadly wrought. And a funny thing happened at the end of the Obama administration as they were going around doing kind of a victory tour on everything we've done right, which is everything, which is any administration's right. Joe Biden specifically said, we've made no progress on this. Now, they had a five-year, very strong, concerted effort to wipe out sexual assault on campus, which I think You're is never ambitious. Wipe it out. Exactly. So that you should make a more realistic right, goal. But, 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 that, but to address it, certainly, again, a very worthy, realistic goal. But in the end, he w- he went around and saying, we've made no progress. The surveys end up, every time we do any school does a survey, it ends up with the same number. We've made zero progress. And then he slammed college presidents for looking aside and not taking this seriously. And it was very strange because it was kind of this nihilistic, if after a five-year concerted effort on campus, and that's like a generation of undergraduates with training Title IX offices with punishments, you know, with new definitions, you know. Was- and the data on the, the, the that he was he was referring to um, have been stable for, for well, those five this years? Well, is all, or- sur- you know, generally from surveys. Right. Which the way the surveys are written are kind of going to generate a certain kind of number. And then there's another thing that doesn't. I mean, it hasn't. We haven't just redefined sexual assault and seen numbers go up because we've redefined it. Uh, it's, I'm just, I'm just, there's, a, there's a stable set of categories these surveys, the questions that these surveys ask, and and we and we've seen no progress on that. No, but but you know, at the same time, you're telling people sexual assault can range from an unwanted kiss to you know, the classic so, uh, someone jumps out of the bushes and pins you to the right. ground. And when you conflate all those, that becomes one number. So 
what were the actual specific things that the Trump administration did to kind of fight back against this uh, atmosphere or this, this bunch of... Here I want to say two things. I voted for Joe Biden, even though I'm highly critical of what he did on this issue. In the end, sitting in the... There are the two names. Very easy. No problem voting for Joe Biden. But... Of all things, the Trump administration took this on in the form of Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education. Trump virtually never said anything about it. You know, there, there really was. But what did she do exactly? Okay. I, she took this on as an issue. The kind of stuff I'm talking about, she said. Um, did she put out her own guidance? Yes. And what, how did that guidance reverse or change what the guidance was before? She said a correction needs to be made. At every point, she said, there is sexual assault on campus. Women are harmed, and we have to address that. And, and, but there are young men who have been unfairly accused. Their education's ended. And your education can be ended. That's it. You're also, one, one presumably has that on one's record for life, and it's a pretty you have been, intense uh, stigma. You know, it's... I, I, a lot of people said, well, you're not in jail, so so what? And I want to say to them, okay, you've just lost your job. You're marked as a rapist. You will never work again. I mean, your education ends sophomore year. You cannot pursue a profession with this mark on you. So if we're going to do that to people, they darn well better deserve it. So as I said, there are these cases, hundreds of cases moving their way through the court system. And of all things, she took this on as an issue, even though working for But again, Donald what did Trump. she do? She said there has schools have to provide due process, which is a constitutional right. And most institutions of higher education in this country are state schools. They have to provide due process. They have to tell you what your accusations are. They have to give the evidence against you. Um, to you. To you. You, you um, have to be able to have a lawyer or advisor. You can present – if there's a formal hearing, you can present your own defense. There can be cross-examination. But it did a lot of other things that doesn't get a lot of attention. It allowed mediation. The Obama administration ended the ability – of two kids who not one is accused of a kind of criminal level rape, but who had some kind of uh, sexual encounter and she has made a complaint. And it used to be that an adult could sit in the room with that if they both agreed, mm -hmm. if they both agreed. And in this, what Betsy DeVos has said, if they both agree... This can be mediated so it doesn't go through this formal system. And both of them aren't being questioned about what happened. And maybe you can arrive at some kind of understanding. Restorative justice almost or something. Uh, yes. But, but mediation. Right. And that had been stopped. And I talked to so many people who said, I used to be able to do that. And that worked remarkably well. But the argument, of course, is that if, if a woman has been sexually assaulted in some way or feels violated in some way, Having her having to sit in the room with her, the offender is 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 re-traumatizing. Now right. I understand that that's, what, that's, that's why, why she has she a choice. That's why she says no. Okay. you're not going to do that. Right. So who in the end decides under the Betsy DeVos rules? 
about that? About no, about oh. about any case. I mean, who who gets to make the final decision? Okay. Is it? It's it's no longer a single thing. It's no longer it's not, just the investigator. No, she banned single investigator. These duties have to, the investigator has to be different from the uh, right. adjudicators. It has to be an an open process. The accused has to have the right to um, present their side. The training materials, I told you these, these mm-hmm. materials to train Title IX officers telling you 98% of the accused did it. Those used to be secret training materials. Now they have to be available. So, uh, you know, if a kid is able to afford a lawyer, a lawyer can say your training materials are prejudicial. So I I wrote a piece about the Atlantic for uh, when her proposals first came out. And I said, we are now going to find out what happens when a morally repugnant administration releases morally necessary rules. Mm -hmm. And it was really (laughs) uncomfortable. Right. To be in most, I have some qualms uh, about some specifics of what she put out. Uh, like what? To, Give to me a couple of qualms. To be in agreement with this administration on this. But in, this is one case where they did it the right way. It took two years. They went through all the procedures uh, to promulgate real regulations. And what Biden is now doing is setting up a, a study group. Is that is that true? To see... To examine whether this is working or, but it's too soon. No, I would think. no. He he gave an executive order to the Secretary of Education to review the DeVos regulations with the idea of whether they need suspending, rescinding, or revision. I think I've okay. I've got that correct. So the idea is, and he promised. He said uh, on the campaign trail, one of the first things I'm going to do when I come in is get rid of these terrible rules that make it easy for rapists to get away with rape. Having himself twice over the course of his campaign been subject to the kind of accusations young men on campus might find themselves subjected to. And some of us thought, well, this might give him a different view on due process, on not just believe, you know, there's the slogan, believe women, believe survivors, on not just believing, on not assuming you don't need to hear, there aren't two sides. There, in an accusation, there are two sides. Democrats who condemned in the strongest possible terms uh, the DeVos Title IX regulations came forward when Joe was accused of hair sniffing and then later um, of a sexual assault, which I actually don't believe. Um, They came forward to say, well, there is such a thing as due process. There is such a thing as examining the claims. Yes, there is. And there should be for everyone. But despite that, he said, one of the first things I'm going to do is get rid of these terrible rules. So now we're in process of the Secretary of Education is looking to see what avenues there are to possibly overturn them. So Biden himself, of course, has been very handsy over the years, uh, grabbing lots of women in all sorts of ways. I, I, I don't think of what he's I don't think he thinks of what he's been he's been doing is sexual uh, assault. Um, but I do think it's 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 an unfortunate thing to touch people when they don't want to be touched or to touch them when they're in no position to refuse in, in, in so many ways. 
but yeah, he doesn't he doesn't seem to see that. Neither does Cuomo, who uh, Andrew Cuomo, who has also been ex- extraordinarily tough in this question against rape and against sexual assault, uh, and yet is seems simultaneously to be. Uh, well, we don't know what exactly has happened with him, but definitely a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, forward-leaning when it comes to sexual and emotional contact with women. Yes, there you go. I mean, Joe, when it's forgotten now, but just before he announced, there were these people coming forward saying he kissed me, he touched me, he sniffed my hair, etc., and he put out a statement saying, "I, you know, have given people hugs as." comfort and I've never meant to violate anyone's space and my intention was never to harm or make people uncomfortable. And on a Title IX hearing on campus, your intention, yeah, good luck, buddy. No one cares about your intention. The whole movement is toward what's the subjective feeling of the recipient. I mean, the, the Biden... Oh, this is interesting. In other the words, Biden administration moved the rules to... This isn't from the perspective of an objective person in a, you know, in a similar... Who has a similar standing. This is your subjective... Lived experience. Fe- yeah. That's what they call it. Right. Is... Should be the way this is judged. And Andrew Cuomo, and again, like Biden... Cuomo took up the mantle of campus sexual assault, also uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. There hasn't been much attention to the work he's done on that. New York in 2019 passed a bill that drastically reduced the, the bar that one had to reach to say they'd been sexually harassed in the workplace. It used to require severe and pervasive behavior. And uh, that was that language was removed. And Cuomo said, by ending the absurd legal standard that sexual harassment in the workplace needs to be severe or pervasive and making it easier for workplace sexual harassment claims to be brought forward, we are sending a strong message that time is up on sexual harassment in the workplace. And he said there's been an ongoing persistent culture of sexual harassment, assault, discrimination in the workplace, and now it's time to act. So, you know, now he's also saying, oh, I was just joking and having some fun and not But it is it. it is true nonetheless, isn't it? And, and I'm, I'm – as a gay man, I'm a little – how should we say um, – just – I don't have the lived experience of the heterosexual interaction. But I certainly listened to many women in my life. And, for example, my sister has told me that she was grabbed, leered at all the time in ways that I would never have seen or noticed because I'm, I'm not looking for that. Uh, I've, come to, I've come to believe that there is that level uh, of, 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 at least there is a serious level in which women are forced to go through stuff. They really don't, shouldn't have to. And maybe... And for the sake of argument, maybe it's important to send a very clear message. This stuff is really not acceptable. I mean, I believe in the due process question. Obviously, I'm, I'm on your side. Now. I can't. Oh, wait a minute. We're not on opposite sides. Do I think sexual harassment doesn't happen? Of course I do. Right, right, right. Of course I do. The question do. is getting a grip on the scale of it and the context in which it happens so that we can actually address it. And that's incredibly hard. I think... There is an argument, surely, that, that, it, that the full criminal law 
due process would make it very hard for young women on campus to, to get any right. redress. And no, no. And, and no one says they're... You're, if you want to get in the criminal justice system, there's a criminal justice system. Right. But what happened on campus was a quasi-judicial system without any protection right. for the right. accused. No, the, so that's not acceptable. And one of the why do I write about this? I'm a woman. Have I experienced sexual harassment? Yes, of course. Uh, I've experienced sexual assault. But you undermine. You don't undo one injustice by creating a new one. And you undermine the very foundation of your cause if you aren't careful that the reforms are careful. Right. But it seems to me that those pushing it have a very different understanding of the world than traditional due process liberals, let's call us. They don't really believe that due process is necessary. They think due process is the way in which the powerful can screw over the powerless. They see the United States, indeed the entire West, as a patriarchal system in which if you go by liberal rules, women will always win. And therefore, your intent doesn't matter. Therefore, our goal is to coerce this behavior away. Um, therefore, we'll be as draconian as we want. And because we don't have a conception of due process, uh, who gives a damn if these, if, if these boys are put through the ringer? Um, but we no do have reason. a conception of due process. We do actually have, again, if you're at a state school, you have the constitutional right to due process. And what's been so, to me, the Democratic Party, writ large across the board, should be a due process party. But they literally during these years on this disparage the concept of due process. And this is, this is, you know, across the range of, and, and some Republicans too. It's not like Republican, Republicans didn't come forward and defend Betsy DeVos's new fairer, uh, you have to say, regulations. They were like, we're almost no one on the Republican side got into this issue. But for Democrats, for liberals to say, we're going to pick and choose who deserves due process. Joe Biden running for president deserves it because we need him to win. But Al Franken didn't deserve it because we getting rid of him, him might be to our advantage in other ways. That is not a system that is going to bring justice to people. Well, the beauty of doing away with these sort of liberal values is that uh, those questions of justice are resolved at a mass group level, not an individual level. I mean, that's philosophically where it's coming from. And that's very interesting with respect to it doesn't matter what the intent of the man is. It's just how the woman felt or how, what, how she felt this happened. He may be a blithering idiot, and I can't imagine uh, anybody worse to have sex with than a drunk frat boy. Um, it's going to be a horrible experience, probably. Uh, but I'm not sure that his intent isn't just to get laid as opposed to abuse someone or rape someone. So, and it does seem to me, you know, mens rea, you, have to, you, you kind of have to show that someone uh, really intended to do harm. Um, unless, of course, it's an incredibly uh, obvious case in which harm was done. Um, it's, a, it's a hugely 
complex issue, it seems to me. Um, but I'm with you in general. I, I, I think... I think I think women, first of all, are doing amazingly well on campuses. That if the goal of Title IX was to empower women in the higher education system, then it's been an incredible success. Although I think obviously millions of other factors contributed, but it is fantastic now that that a, a, a growing majority of college graduates are women. A growing uh, majority of grad grad students are women. That women are dominating many fields they didn't used to, um, and it looks to me as if we've made quite a bit of progress in advancing women in, in well, let me say we, women have made a huge <laughs> amount of progress in, in making their way in America. And I, this is one of the things that always amazes me is that why can't we ever acknowledge success? You know, to some extent. It doesn't have to be perfect success. It doesn't have to be solving every problem. It can just be a little progress. And... But Andrew, th this is one of a, a really disturbing thing that's risen up in the past few years. There's a widespread belief, particularly among younger people, here we go, those kids, that progress is something older people deluded themselves about. Right. There is no, there, there can't be. There are immutable qualities. Power accrues in a certain immutable way. And if you don't recognize that, you're not recognizing the world and progress doesn't exist. And that is such a damaging belief for society and for individuals. Because what you just cited, you know, growing numbers of women, there's about a 20% college uh, undergraduate gap between college men and women. I mean, there's actually... You mean there are 20% more women than men? Yes. Uh, and this is true across the country with the exception of a few... Well, the Ivies can balance their gender. And, you know, Caltech, still schools like that prob may have more males or be at around 50-50. Rest of colleges in this country, I mean, some schools are 70-30 female, and men are disappearing from higher education. So let's celebrate the victory of women. There has been unbelievable progress, and, and most biology degrees go to women in this country. Psychology has become almost an entirely female field. Veterinary medicine is almost an entirely female field. But you... We don't talk about this. I know. It's, it's, um, I met the other day, just in terms of gay rights, for example, I'm an old fart at this point, I understand, but I did live in a different universe two, three decades ago. And right now, if you are at any point in history or on the planet Earth, if you are a gay person or a trans person, there is, you, and you got, get to pick when you were born, you pick now. Just quite simply. And, and yet, because of critical theory in so many ways, which posits that there's never any moment of success, there's only a constant struggle against oppression, uh, people are incapable of realizing that. I mean, I get, I get emails from the Human Rights Campaign, which is the big gay rights group, saying, we are under gay men and lesbians are under unprecedented assault from our government. And I'm just, either you don't know the meaning of the word unprecedented uh, but you're out of your minds. You really are out of your minds. Uh, not that much harm was done under Trump to gay and lesbian or transgender rights. In fact, 
although you'd never believe it, the Bostock decision uh, gave transgender people civil rights on the 19, based on the 1964 Act across the entire country. This is the Supreme Court decision. That was the Supreme Court uh, Bostock decision. Uh, With conservative justices. It was actually a ruling, a, a ruling written by Gorsuch. Right. Uh, but if, well, this is a problem. Okay, but you're people a gay do man. Want, yeah. I'm a woman, and I I've read you know th- I read a review of some show about Newsweek in the 1970s, 80s when women rose up, and you know that women were could only be researchers, and the men were the senior editors, and the reviewers said, you know, of course things are no better, but this show, and it's like, no, I was there. Things are better. <laughs> Believe me, just look around. Just look around. I met a I met a gay guy last week who is a refugee from Iran, and he showed me the scars of lashes on his back because he was gay. In some ways, I I feel like the total hyperventilation about relatively small issues in the grand scheme of things around gays and lesbians and transgender people has lost all perspective entirely. It doesn't have a baseline. also has very little understanding of history. Um, And the history they've learned has been a a mythology created to generate this kind of, of politics. But there's also a sense in which if your meaning of your life is to dismantle this oppressive system. You, that's, that's what gives you meaning. The worst thing that could happen to you is to have that system disappear. There is a strange counterintuitive way, and I saw this with some gays in the 80s and 90s, in which they're attached to marginalization, fetishize it in certain ways. And my view was no one's trying to prevent people living on the fringes. <laughs> Go ahead. Be as freaky as you want. In fact, uh, uh, more power to you. But it should be a choice, not a fate. And if people want to pursue a different way of living, and they're gay people and lesbians or transgender people, they're not violating their identity. They're expressing themselves as a human being. But you see the need for a certain class now. And there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of institutions behind it. to make sure that no one ever says things have gotten better, uh, to make sure that there's always a crisis of oppression happening and it's coming to you. And the fervor, the zeal of this, is, strikes me as very religious in its, in its origins. It's interesting to see the, uh, I saw today, this week, in the Gallup poll uh, of decline of religious faith. And what you see is a collapse in mainline Protestantism and a big rise in atheism, and which is wrapped up in social justice. One thing I always admire about ta Coates, for example, is his, his very frank confession that, that atheism is an incredibly important part of how he sees the world. There's no redemption at all. There's just struggle. I find that to be ahistorical, and I certainly have lived it myself, so I know it's not true. Well, one of the larger issues in my writing about kind of a I'm a feminist I'm an OG feminist um, OG original gangster feminist oh, okay. uh, counter you know trying to counter some of these trends is that I see I've I've 
read these essays by young college women and women coming in, young women coming into the workplace, saying, I am scared. I, I was told my whole life, you know, be careful walking alone at dark, but that's not what this is. The cute guy in my Spanish class could be my rapist. And, you know, the professor saying, hey, I'd like you to help me with my research project could be grooming me. The, you know, the boss could be the next Harvey Weinstein. What if he starts talking to me in the coffee room? You read these accounts of real terror that that any man is likely to be this. And it also goes along with this junk science I wrote about, that when you're a, a woman is in a sexual encounter, she doesn't like how it's going, you freeze, you're unable to say no, you're unable to get out of it, so you just you know go along with it because you fear for your life in situations that no one could consider life-threatening. We should not create a culture of victimization. That is a terrible way to go through life, to fear half your colleagues, uh, to, to fear bodily harm from them. When, you know, statistically, d does it happen? Yes, but it is very unlikely to happen. Yes, and I think journalists in most cases, for example, if there's a terror attack, you find a whole spate of pieces afterwards saying it's only 25 people. If you look at the number of people who die from tripping over the lawnmower every week, you, you, you get similar things. But you don't panic about this because it, it has a visceral, visceral uh, impact in your, in, in, in your lizard brain that is making you irrational in terms of the risks involved. It's also true, for example, that the, according to the data last year, the odds of an unarmed black man being shot dead by the police is, is smaller than the odds of him being struck by lightning. But you get, last summer, this notion that the mass murder of random African-American males on the streets by the cops is taking place all the time and no one notices it. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's where people latch onto. You can, if you want to go through your life seeing every tiny little possible thing as an assault on your identity, these micro microaggressions. If you want to be a gay person, constantly looking around you for proof that 95% of the world has no idea what your life is like, uh, you can. But psychologically, it's so damaging for people to feel so helpless and also to lose perspective, to see the entire world through these prisms. And with the race stuff, it's also you're being trained to understand the first thing you see about a person, the color of their skin, is the most important thing you can know about them and your relationship, even though you may have and never met And they can them. know about themselves. Yes. And it's crippling psychologically. It's crippling. My, the one, the one uh, quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, I, I, think may, I think it's been, let's say, ascribed to Eleanor Roosevelt, is that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And at some point, it seems to me that there is obviously a problem with men in the modern world, certainly since the 60s, and presumably also before that, of them abusing women. I mean, it's, it's, it's real. There is uh, absolutely no question. The world, you know, kind of described in Mad Men, really existed. A young woman coming into a workplace today... Yes, I, I, I read the very interesting account by Charlotte Bennett of 
the conversations with Andrew Cuomo, which really mm. make you kind of gag. Does this never happen? Of course this happens. But it's so much the assumptions of my, my late father-in-law, who would be over 100 now, was a managing partner at um, a law firm in the 1960s and 70s. He helped bring in the first female partners, gay partners, uh, black partners. And he was telling the story. One of the white male partners said, look, you got to stop with these women. I, I don't even find them attractive. And I have to, like, you know, make a pass at them. And I'm not interested. <laughs> this is, I mean, and it was an amazing story. But today, would a partner think I have to try to sexually harass any of the women? I mean, men who don't get that this is not okay. If you're in a company of more than whatever, 20 people, you've had training. Hmm. If you're not getting the message, there'll always be people who are creeps and are not going to get the message. But the majority of people have gotten the message. I mean, you know, it's Again, it's, but the trouble is but we very, have, yeah, it's very hard in, to quantify this. That's the problem. You can, but we've been in, we're addicted to moral panics. We've been, you know, we roll through moral panics. And when one dies down, like satanic abuse in daycare centers, we find another one. And so... Because it's part of our DNA, is it not? Certainly as Americans, it's, 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 we, we began with a bunch of religious fanatics persecuting and being paranoid. Um, and that tradition continues from the blacklist, the Hollywood blacklist, to the McCarthy era, all of that stuff. The uh, Scarlet Letter the Salem Witch Trials, and so on and so forth. I want to uh, switch the topic a little bit to something that we might be able to bond over, which is um, you wrote this hilarious book about your beagle. And I am, as dishheads know, I mean, it's on my site. She's on my site. That's my original beagle called Dusty. I then had a – and she's not a beagle, so I can't really count her, except she's a, a hound that looks a bit like a beagle. And then the third one I have this little, which I now have, is this little three-legged rascal called Bowie, after David Bowie. And she's, uh, she's a triped. She got hit by a truck, and we got her through the beagle rescue. What is it about you, – you had a beagle, and now you haven't had one since. <laughs> when did this one die? When did the beagle At least 10 years ago mm. now. I'm on dog four now. I mean, I – was going to be, I was an adamant, I was a cat person dragged to beagle ownership, and now I'm on my fourth dog. What makes a beagle different? You're, you're going to have to tell me what makes a beagle different, <laughs> that you keep wanting them in your life. Um, well, it's because I obviously have intimacy problems. <laughs> I remember I actually, <laughs> my first beagle was so aloof. The thing about beagles is they they really are their nose. own person. It's all well, it's certainly all about the nose and, and food all the time, but it's also there's some they have a slight self possession, they have an orneriness, character. They don't ever do what they're told, even though they know full well what they're supposed to do. Actually, my current beagle is it's a model of good behavior. Um, I mean, as long as there's no food left anywhere, but I like them because they're not they don't worship you. I mean, Snoopy was a beagle. Well, then you should get a cat if you want to not be worshipped. No, but cats, first of all, I'm allergic. And secondly, there's just something about them that's too too aloof, too independent. There's, there's, I think a beagle is a lovely 
half uh, measure in as much as they are, they love us. Obviously, they've got incredibly wonderful souls, these, these dogs. They're the, among the kindest and, and gentlest of dogs. I know. It turns out, you know, Snoopy probably corrupted my ideas of what a beagle was because uh, Sasha was not a philosopher. Um, so that that was a problem. I will say I when I was pregnant, I understood the hound mentality huh. better than I ever have, because pregnant women often your sense of smell becomes unbelievably acute and overwhelming. And I realized if you're the world is odors. You really can't think that that that's it. So I forgive a lot of Sasha eating all our shoes because you know if it, it smells like yeah, it might be, be edible. A cow, might be a cow. I'm gonna eat it. <laughs> they're not. They're not picky eaters. The beagles. It is. Their noses are incredible. I watch my little beagle sometimes on the beach in Provincetown or even here in in Meriden Hill Park, and her nose is just up in the air twitching in a million different ways and she can probably smell god knows what miles away uh she will remember when so where exactly someone dropped a, oh a, a if potato you left chip. a ham sandwich you know a week ago she can smell i i once had neighbors uh, i had a dinner party and i was we were putting our daughter to bed upstairs and the neighbors called because they said I don't know if you want Sasha on the dining room table eating all the <laughs> leftovers, but we're looking through the window. Uh, yeah. Have you ever read J.R. Ackerley's book, My no. Dog, My Dog Tulip? No. Oh, it's it's amazing. There's there's a there's a chapter in it called Solids and Fluids, <laughs> because beagles also hard to house train. Uh, they they my, they do occasionally take a pee inside, and don't really occasionally. <laughs> My last one was terrible. It was, you know, two or three times a week. It was just a constant war against urine. No, it was a 10-year battle in our house. <laughs> and when we finally moved, we moved. And, you know, toward the end, uh, I was um, kind of, you know, I think we've made some progress. And we moved to couch. She had a spot there. The f The floor was just saturated. The wood was warped. I mean, that's where she'd been going for years, but she also could never really get her to walk with me. One time I was... Oh, they can't walk in a straight line. No, and so one time I was walking her, and I was in the middle of some struggle with an editor, and I have to acknowledge I talked to myself, literally moved my mouth, and thank God, I just hold a cell phone up <laughs> so it looks like I'm not crazy. And I was walking her, um, and I've been walking for about a mile, and I was like, if you don't get that version back to me and I'm totally caught up and you know I'm and I there was this this little you know what she's walking better finally you know this is 10 years in she's walking better and I got home and I went up the stairs and her empty leash clunked on the stairs so she had slipped out of her leash a mile ago and I was just walking and talking and she in my you. neighborhood no she was gone I had spent you know walked a mile with an empty leash gesticulating and talking oh my to goodness. myself I can't imagine what How I look like that must have been um 
no, because well, how, when I did, got, how did you find Sasha? <laughs> she had her collar on, and she'd run. Somebody found her. Found her immediately, and of course the person said I, I had fed her about. 40 minutes before this all happened. And this neighbor said, well, we found your dog. She seemed like she was starving. Yes, so, I get that yeah. a lot too. Uh-huh. What are you doing starving <laughs> your dog? Because I'm just like, no, they're, they're, they're this desperate for food, even on a completely right. full stomach. What I have, I have this, um, this, this new collar that you can get, which is doubles as a Fitbit for the dogs. In other words, you can see how, how, much, how many steps they take a day. And, but it also gives you a locator. So if it's on, you'll always be able to know exactly where she is. Um, and when I walk, we walk off leash on, in the beaches in Provincetown. One of her favorite things to do is to just bury under one of these wharves. Uh, they love dirty, dank, Oh, I was going to say rotting fish. Oh, yeah. they, the, oh the rotting wrong. fish is just heaven to them. And I remember there was one, my first Beagle Dusty was... was uh, I was looking for her one day, as one does, and I'm feeling such an idiot yelling dusty, dusty everywhere. And I just couldn't see her anywhere. And, 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 and there was this, also that morning uh, on the beach, uh, an entire uh, tuna head, a vast husk <laughs> of tuna had come abroad. Now, these are not small. There's a big yeah. ass thing rotting on the, and eventually I, I thought to look inside it. And she was inside no. it, just enraptured. <laughs> to Enra- Jonah. Did you change her name to Jonah at that the point? The smell did not leave her and <laughs> leave me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And she was so, the other thing about it is she was so psyched. There was like, she, that was the, one of the best days of her life. And uh, I, without this beagle, without Bowie, I would have gone insane over the last few months during this hideous pandemic. Uh, well, everyone... In our neighborhood, got a dog. We got another dog. We got the COVID puppy. We have a rescue half Chihuahua, half Terrier, and we got a COVID puppy. Yeah. Well, those two temperaments are pretty lively. Um, yes. Terriers and Chihuahuas. She's actually uh, very mellow. You know, oh. she was. Um, we were told when you do a rescue, we were told she was two. The vet says eh, she's about five. And, you know, so now she's about eight or nine. So she's mellow. But we added a, a COVID puppy. Well, we'll be very shocked when any of us leave the house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it has also been a boon for dogs, the pandemic. But it's going to be very painful for them because they're going to think, this is 24-7 forever you're here. And you know what they me. do? They... um. They then act up if you're not there. Yeah. Then, then the peeing happens all all the time. I remember like years and years ago, uh, I was dating this guy before I met Aaron. And uh, he stayed over for the first time. He lived in Chicago and stayed over overnight and supplanted the dog. <laughs> and so as we get up in the morning and making coffee and whatever, Dusty literally goes up to the bed, jumps on top of it where he was sleeping and pees right there, soaking the mattress with urine. And I'm like, you're not very subtle, Dusty. Uh, and Andrew, this is the difference between us. That's what you love about a beagle. And that's <laughs> what I find a negative about the beagle. I've learned to um, embrace the suck, as okay. they said, and, and just see them as these wonderful, quirky, individual characters. And uh, in a way, I, I, I never want to be with someone who does what I ask or say. <laughs> I, it's just against my nature. Um, I don't, 
I, it's a weird thing. I mean, I, you know what? That's why. Will robotic pets or robotic people, will that work? Because the pleasure is you don't always know, and it's you're going to program it to don't obey me. You're right. You just don't want something. You want the challenge of another mind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 it's lonely without that. And I've never really felt good in a massive crowd where everyone is on my side and agreeing. You know, I just, I find it inherently creepy. I, I don't like well, mobs in unison. And, and that goes for the internet as well, virtually, and in real life. I just, my instinct, and it, I, it's not even political, my instinct, and it's not trolling, and it's not, it's just my instinct is to take the other point of view and to see how that works out. Well, that used to be kind of a what attracted people to journalism. It was for the skeptics and misfits of the world. Yeah. And that's really changing. Yep. It's for those who I who already know and ideologically agree. We had dinner a couple of years ago and you said the people who are writing things against that go against the beliefs in their newsroom, the beliefs of their colleagues tend to work at home. Yeah. And I thought that was a really great insight because, you know, you did, I do. A lot of people who aren't in sync aren't there. It's very hard when you're in a room and people, you know, hate you and won't say hello to, to you. So it is, it's, it's Bari Weiss was telling me about this in the New York Times in this room. And, you know, she's not, I mean, on the Slack channels, they, they were horrible about her. And, but just walking through the office and feeling, feeling the, the hatred towards you or the rejection of you, it's, it's in the long run, it's, it's really psychologically hard to, it, it is. to survive. And also, if you're a writer, you've got to, in my view, you've got to be able to just say what you think. It, it, the minute you start out writing, thinking, I can't say that, and I can't say that, and I can't say that, so what can I say? And it comes out, it, it never works. You become paralyzed. And, and you should arrive at what you think, not, you know, okay, that's what everyone thinks, I'm going to think opposite it. No, but you're right. The process of what should we think? Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the evidence and sift the evidence and read the studies and read the footnotes of the studies and say, oh, actually, the study that's cited doesn't really say what we're being told. It's that that's the exciting part of taking on difficult issues. And that's debunking myths. Yes. Going in there, finding the actual studies, actually looking at the seeing what is in front of one's nose. Mm -hmm. And People aren't seeing that. They are seeing it through this one single prism of human evil and oppressive characteristics and victimization. And it's 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 not without any truth. Of course. It is not. I mean, obviously it's one it plays a part. The inherited culture, the inheritance in this country of of, of racial hierarchy imposed for a long time by law. The ancient prohibition, for example, against homosexuality. Um, and the oppression of women and the... But again, I've been lucky enough to live a lifetime in this, what someone on Twitter took a hellscape of the United States. 
and have seen in my own eyes and in my own life astonishing progress that was made through liberal arguments, legislatures, courts, the traditional system. It, there is no reason to abandon our liberal society. It has worked. It may take a little longer, but it will have fewer unintended consequences. It's non-zero sum. We can all win. Uh, and it doesn't shy away from, from difficult issues. Uh, I agree with that. I mean, when I was in high school, this is, I, I, used, I was editor of the school paper. Uh, but I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to write things that criticize the headmaster. So I set up my, another magazine that I did, published, Samizdat, and spread around the room. That's just sort of my nature. And that's why I went into journalism. It, it's, it's, it's a curiosity. Um, you get to... You get to ask questions you, as a normal person, couldn't ask. You get to ask the really hard, tough questions, not just for the sake of it, but you're trying to get at something. Yeah. And, you know, what What you just said, the acknowledgement of all the wrongs that have happened and do continue to happen, even if things are better. Those of us who are writing saying, hey, let's slow down, let's take a look at the consequences of these actions, acknowledge, I fully acknowledge terrible things happen to women. They shouldn't. We should identify the people who do this. They should be appropriately punished. But what happens is, I'm, and I don't like to think of it as sides, but let's say people who disagree with us, there's very rarely acknowledgement, you know what, this may have gone too far, or injustice was done in this case to this young man. He shouldn't have been kicked out of school. And, I, you know, in my writing on this, I'm not looking at cherry-picked one-offs. I was looking at a s systematic thing that was happening. And so we have to acknowledge the truth of bad things, but there seems to be an inability to acknowledge that that things can go too far the other way or things can be better than you're saying. There's also a failure to acknowledge the fallenness of human nature. Uh, so many of these things are just human failings, human flaws that can metastasize um, through mob mentality. Um, and I think the notion that humans are born completely innocent and only society constructs them, and therefore the only way to make your life better is to dismantle that society, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it's a horrible way to live. I could not have lived. I really, I wouldn't have gotten through the last 30 years of, of my life, the challenges, uh, if, if, if my entire psyche was bound up on, in the gay identity. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a large amount of this, but, but it's just part of a human whole and it'll play a different part in every single person. And I think you, you touched on a point that we, a lot of psychology, the focus of psychology is largely individuals and individual problems. We don't understand people in groups well enough, and especially when a group becomes a mob. And I think we really, we need to understand that because this is happening virtual and actual mobs. We've, we, we've seen particularly, you know, the this year, the last few years, what happens to people. It loosens their, you know, sense of what's acceptable. Uh, and now we're rewarding, especially online, being part of a mob. It's a really exciting thing. But that's very dangerous. Yeah, that's why Douglas Murray called his book on the work, uh, The Madness of Crowds. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that is what we're up against. Liberalism has always stood up against that, at least it tried to. It provides some sort of break on that very human mechanism. And it's much more human to be a part of a mob and to believe in a Manichaean world and believe everything you do is for the good and everyone, everything your opponents do is for the bad. Well, that's why liberalism is incredibly hard. It's counterintuitive. It works against our nature, but it is a non-zero-sum engagement which allows everybody in the end to have an equal stake in the society. Um, Emily, it's been lovely to talk to you. Um, so wonderful to I see hope, you. I hope uh, In person. I know. I, I, the number of people I can see in person these days is slowly going up, and it's, 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 it's lovely. And the blossoms are out here in, in D.C., and... Hope is on the horizon, and Easter is Sunday. So um, happy Easter, everybody. Happy Passover to those of you who it's, I think it's just happened. Mm -hmm. um, and happy whatever to everybody. <laughs> uh, I will see you next week. We've got another really humdinger coming up. Thank you.